I just feel like a huge privilege of my life is to see art on a daily basis. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This week, the biggest story around here at Artnet HQ is that finally, after being in the works literally for years, we have unveiled a very exciting new members-only section of the website that is dedicated to covering the inside baseball nitty-gritty of the art market. Called Artnet News Pro, it now encompasses exclusive data-driven reports on the behind-the-scenes machinations driving the sector, together with our popular industry-leading market columns like Tim Schneider's Gray Market, Nate Freeman's Wet Paint Gossip Sheet, Kenny Schachter's Unique Dispatches, and Katja Kazakina's Art Detective. Now, that last column I mentioned is particularly exciting to me because, as everyone knows, Katja Kazakina is not only one of the greatest art market journalists ever, she is also an old friend who I've wanted to work with for eons and now am thrilled to call a colleague. So who is Katja? What is her origin story? How does she land the killer scoops that she does? And what does she make of the state of the art market today? To find out that and more, I'm very happy to have Katja Kazakina on the show today. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Katja. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm very excited for you to be here, too, because while we've known each other for a long time and I've admired your excellent reporting for even longer, I don't know if even I know the full Katja story. And now I get to turn the repertorial lens on you for a change. Where were you born and what was your upbringing like? I was born in the Soviet Union in a beautiful, beautiful city, Leningrad, which is now known as St. Petersburg. And I spent my first 15 years there and I came to the United States as a political refugee, as a teenager with my parents in 1990. We left right around the time Berlin Wall came down. In fact, I turned 16, I think a day before that momentous event. And I didn't grow up speaking English. That is an interesting caveat to being a journalist in a foreign language. Last week, I got a really nice compliment from someone who is also not a native speaker that when they read me, they don't feel like I'm a foreigner, <laughs> essentially, which was very nice to hear. You're like the, the Nabokov of art journalism. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It's something that I don't think about that much anymore, other than when I'm fighting with words, when I'm writing. But I feel like writing is a fight no matter what language. I don't see it as particular to being born in Russian culture with Russian language. It's just bloody hard to write. <laughs> That's all I can say. So you settled in the United States when you were a teenager. What was life like then? And how did you eventually start to get interested in journalism? Well, when we came, we were very poor. We were refugees. We lived in Brooklyn in Bensonhurst area. And actually studied in a yeshiva high school because as we moved from the Soviet Union to America, I realized that I didn't know anything at all about my Jewish background. Didn't know the concept of Shabbat until I was only 16. And the level of my ignorance really prompted me to really want to learn a lot more. And so the first thing that I ended up learning in America was Hebrew, which was sort of totally absurd now in retrospect. I went to college at Barnard and I 
eventually settled on comparative literature as my major. And I think that, again, to go back to different languages and being raised and living in these two different languages, different cultures, a comparative element became very important, constantly kind of drawing bridges between, how do I say it in this language? What's the equivalent in English? This is a very different ways of looking at the world as well. And I think that it continues to inform how I see the world, how I approach journalism and the art world. But my interest in art really goes back to my childhood because one of the things that the Soviet system was really good at was education. It was free. It was really good. And so when I was 11, I applied and I was admitted to a kind of after-school program at the Hermitage. Of course, one of the greatest museums in the world in St. Petersburg. So those classes at the Hermitage, they were like after school once a week. They started in the fifth grade and they continued through school. And I left Russia when I was in eighth grade. So for three years, I was there every week going from, started in the basement with Mesopotamia and with ancient art. And it ended with Matisse. And that was kind of the end of art, (laughs) as we know it. But basically, that's where my interest in art, that's where the roots come from. That just the role of traditional classical culture in the Soviet Union was very different. Our entertainment was going to the philharmonics or going to the opera or reading books and going to museums. Or at some point when things began to open up, it was the underground art kind of exploded and these exhibitions became really a major life event in the life of the city. And I was at the time a teenager, music as well, rock music. So it was all like so vital and so important to who I was growing up to be. And and it was kind of also had this very romantic connotation, artists always, in my eyes, were on a pedestal. You know, my mother was amused to many of them, you know, like informally, you know, there was just the circle, kind of our circle of friends as I was growing up. So it was something very integral and organic to how I saw myself, not necessarily writing about it, because also writing was something that I put on a pedestal, you know, obviously everybody knows great Russian writers and it's something that I surprised my parents and myself when I said that I want to be a journalist. Everybody was sort of shocked. Nobody saw it coming. (laughs) When did that happen? Did that happen when you were still at Barnard or did that happen afterwards? How did that decision come to you? You know, because I was studying comparative literature, I thought that I was going to go into publishing. And so I worked for a couple of literary agents when I was in college. And then my first job after college was at a literary agency. And I quickly realized that to become a literary agent, you have to spend years being an assistant of a literary agent. And assistant is something that I'm very bad at. (laughs) I'm a very bad assistant. This is definitely not my skill set. Everybody who worked with me at Bloomberg, you know, knows my desk is like a pure chaos, just piles and piles of books and papers. So I just kind of realized that this was not path for me to pursue, that I needed something more nimble, something more independent and something that just did not require the drudgery. And so I read a book called In the Hold and it was written by a journalist and really kind of made a huge impact on me, just this kind of generational kind of feeling low and searching for yourself, you know, and I thought, 
wow, maybe this is what I can do, like becoming a journalist. Of course, I saw it in a very romantic light at the time, traveling the world and doing what I wanted. <laughs> you know, so, so I got this internship at the CBS News, Dan Rather show, and I was like a total minion. It was a prestigious thing and it was great, but very low on the uh, on the poll. And I really didn't like it. What I didn't like about it was that it just felt like everything, every news was reduced to the lowest common denominator, like what would appeal to everyone. And there was no nuance. And I saw it in a way that it was just very local and very dumbed down. And I felt like poisoned by that environment. I really didn't like it. And so I had a little bit of money saved and I went traveling in Europe with a plan of going back to Russia. And, you know, I was in my early twenties. And when I came to Russia, to Leningrad, I had an ID from CBS News. And with that ID, I launched myself as a journalist. But the credential meant a lot. And I guess that was 1997. And I started writing for St. Petersburg Times, English language newspaper in St. Petersburg and some other publications. And then I returned and got a job with a very small local newspaper in the Bronx in Riverdale. It took me a while, really, to get somewhere, mostly because I kind of didn't know what I was doing. You know, I ended up going to Columbia Journalism School just to learn how it's done. And that's where I really fell in love with reporting and shoe leather reporting and going wherever it may be and just getting the news. Did you have any mentors when you were starting out that kind of like helped shape your unique approach to reporting? My biggest mentor and whom I absolutely owe so much to and adore is this wonderful journalist and writer, June Ehrlich. She teaches at Harvard right now, and she has been out there for a while. She is the editor-in-chief of Revista. She went to Barnard as well. And so when I graduated from Barnard, I was trying to figure out, like, what am I going to do? And my mother's friend gave me this very thick alumni directory from Barnard, and it was broken down by industries. And so I just went through page by page to see which career paths interested me, because as an immigrant, I guess to me, a lot of careers were very unknown, right? Like my family, I have a lot of lawyers and doctors, but what's there beyond that? And I really didn't know. And so just coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, a lot of people who I ended up contacting were working in the media. So June was at the Fairchild's publications at the time, and that's how I met her. And so that was 96. And she really has been incredible throughout my whole journalistic journey. And she really encouraged me to become a journalist, to go to Columbia. And I show even now complicated stories to her before I submit them to my editors. She's really amazing. For me, always, you know, as an immigrant, you kind of always struggle with belonging and being marginal and wanting to assimilate, but also wanting to preserve your uniqueness and your original identity. You know, for many years, I just felt like I was just kind of tired of always telling people about this journey of mine, you know, that immigrant story. And June said, you know, you have to write about it when you're applying to Columbia Journalism School, because that what really sets you apart. And I was totally blocked and I didn't want to write about it. And I remember calling her in tears and I was just like, I don't want to write about it. I really don't want to write about it. And she told me, okay, well then write about why you don't want to write about it. And it was just like such a profound moment. It completely opened 
like the floodgates. I sort of have tears now thinking about it. So you've talked about how you came to art and you've talked about how you came to journalism and kind of grew as a reporter. How did these things come together for you? How did you come to become an art journalist? It's always been something that I loved and put on a pedestal and always interested me and connects to my soul and my childhood and me in some profound way. And I think journalism does as well. When I realized there was such a thing and that I can learn and become one, it really felt like since discovering this identity of a journalist, this career path, you know, it really is who I am. And so I've written about so many different subjects, education and crime and oil markets and a lot of different things. But it felt like art, it was just like, that's perfect match. You know, I've been covering it now for 15 years and it continues to challenge me and interest me and frustrate me and, you know, inspire me. I just feel like a huge privilege of my life is to see art on a daily basis and to talk with artists, people who make it and people who sell it as well. But really that communion with works of art is something that just energizes me and fulfills me in some very profound way. And you really took off as an art journalist when you went to Bloomberg News in 2006. And for almost the entirety of the 15 years thereafter, you were really their heavyweight art market journalist. You would break scoops all the time, huge industry or era-defining scoops about where the art market was going. And one thing that I think a lot of journalists always admired was that you were able to really get scoops that didn't seem to be possible to get. How do you approach the work of reporting and translate that to this kind of, you know, very opaque, elitist art business? Right before coming to Bloomberg for about a year and a half, I was working as a reporter at Dow Jones, where I was covering the physical crude oil trading. So incredibly geeky stuff. And also I was covering the movement of dirty tankers <laughs> that transported oil. And so it was the moment of great globalization, the rise of China in that market. And I saw how that happened. Also nationalization in Russia, the Yukos, a lot of interesting cases, the hurricanes they hit, the Gulf of Mexico, Ivan and Katrina later. And so I was out there writing stories about these events, also going to Moscow, going to Switzerland, using my Russian language to inform my reporting, just because the trade was so global. But I realized that my interest in that field was finite. And then Bloomberg was just launching its arts and culture desk. I've been in touch with Manuela Holterhoff, who ran it for a couple of years, and she was ready to expand and she hired me. So when I joined, she said, oh, what am I going to do with you? You know, she had very senior critics covering theater and books and ballet and opera, of course, and art. So when I started, I really didn't know much about the market at all. There were two people writing for Manuela at the time. One of them was Lindsay Pollock, who was covering the big auctions and fairs and the art market, blue chip, high-end. And then Linda Blonsky was an art critic. So there were these two incredible women writers covering with great impact and fluency and nuance these areas. And I just had to learn very quickly and really carve out a place for myself 
one place that wasn't covered were the galleries because Lindsay was covering the auctions and the fairs and more high-end market and the galleries and primary market wasn't in focus. And it was, you know, of great interest to me, the personalities, the art. I was at the time I was dating and I'm married to an artist, Greg Goldberg, and he really helped me kind of even understand, like, what am I looking at? And it was our shared passion. You know, we went out to galleries and looked at a lot of art. And then I had this column called Hot Art. So when I started, you know, in my mind, I was thinking, I just spent a year and a half writing about the globalization of the oil trade. And so I immediately knew that we're going to see something similar in the art world because it was just like around the same time when China began rising as a major power within the art market, the Chinese contemporary art sales in New York at the time at Sotheby's, the first one, which was a huge event. You know, again, I started seeing the similarities, my comparative literature mind, and just being this bicultural person, you know, I just see these connections. There's certain things that are very obvious to me. At the same time, I realized that the primary market, the galleries, I was shocked by how opaque everything was. And in fact, it was even more opaque than the physical crude oil trade. (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, when I was covering these differentials and how different oils were trading, there was no exchange. So there was no one number. So how do you go around to get as many sources as you can and get some kind of a consensus? And so one of the first things that I started doing in this column was try to get the prices for the artworks. And that was 2006. And believe me, it was very hard to get. People really didn't want to tell me those prices. Forget about Gagosian Gallery. Like every story about Gagosian was like an investigative piece. <laughs> just, but everything was like that. To think how different the situation is now when everybody's trying to tell you all these prices and that they've become almost like a way to market artists and exhibitions. But back then it was incredibly hard to obtain that information. And, and so that's how I started. Your column for Artnet is called Art Detective. And I think that's an incredibly apt name for a column, not only because it's a phrase that has been associated with you for a long time. It's your social media handle. It's just a very accurate way of describing how you approach what you do. So how do you go about finding clues, identifying suspects? What does that mean to be an art detective? It's just how I sort of see myself and the role of a reporter in the art market, precisely because it's so opaque that sometimes the most innocuous questions lead to little investigations, things that you just sort of take for granted. And then you realize, no, you're not going to get those answers from people. So how do I do it? I mean, I learned so much at Bloomberg about kind of rooting the reporting in data, the size and the scope. You know, you follow the money, you numbers tell stories. And so I just always try to find the significance of whatever anecdote that I might be interested in exploring. But sometimes I'm surprised that people tell me things and I don't know exactly why, you know, for me, the main thing is just to protect my sources. I think that that's why people talk to me because they know that 
they can tell me things and I'm not gonna fuck them over and gonna protect their confidentiality and I'm gonna fact check in some ways very conservative about how I go about things but when I was working in this arts and culture group at Bloomberg News we weren't really encouraged to use unnamed sources and the amount of information that I was getting was much more limited. And then after Muse got asked, asked to join the investing team, that the group that covered hedge funds and private equity, for them, like working with an anonymous sources was extremely important. And we had very rigorous system to make sure that you were accurate. So I started learning about how to use that and how to do that. And I think that that really propelled my reporting quite considerably. I think to cover the art market, you really need to do it because, you know, ultimately, a lot of times people don't really have an upside to tell you things. So obviously working with sources uh, and having the trust of sources is incredibly important for the kind of reporting you do. And one other thing that I think that people have always really admired about your work is that after an auction takes place, you know, there will be these big numbers that fly up in, in the headlines about, you know, a record Monet, a record Picasso. And somehow within like minutes of the sale ending, you are able to figure out who was the actual person who bought this artwork. How do you understand the motivations of buyers? And how do you understand, like, what is it that will get somebody to tell you, you know, that they were the person behind this, like, incredibly high dollar uh, purchase? How do you um, work with them to get that information into your copy? Oh, thanks, Andrew. No, I actually, I feel like I could be better at that. <laughs> I feel like I'm better at identifying sellers than buyers. I mean, sometimes you just see people in the room and then you just approach them. I mean, just basic reporting, really. Sometimes you approach people and they tell you they didn't buy it. And then Kenny writes that they did, <laughs> you know, and that's could be frustrating and confusing, but I don't know why people tell me things. It's a mystery. It really is. I think you just kind of have to be nice and respectful. And some people like seeing their name in the press at certain times. You know, the reasons, right, for people to acquire art is so complex. There are so many motivations. And I think a lot of times it's become such an incredible marketing tool for people, right? Think about the Basquiat and Maezawa, right? How much press did he get? He became like a global figure thanks to that purchase. So people can use art and these big sales, these big purchases to great advantage and for businesses and for reasons that really have nothing to do with their art and the art world. It holds such appeal. And I think that people are just endlessly fascinated by how much someone is willing to pay for art. For the outside world, Looking in, someone buying the banana peel, right, for $120,000. Like, you guys broke that story. It went viral, right? It was insane. But now we're kind of, as the art world, I feel like we're on the receiving end of this, looking at the NFTs along with the rest of the world, like with people that we don't understand. That's how the world perceives the art world, always. <laughs> it's like one people after another. <laughs> So you, you talked about the auction market and how that's kind of obscure, you know, cloaked in shadows. The gallery market and the primary market is even more opaque. Maybe one of your most significant stories has been where you were able to show the gap between the primary market 
And then the amount of money these things were able to get on the secondary market. You know, I'm thinking about your 2014 article where you were saying that collectors were getting 3,000% returns on their investment in buying work by these abstract painters who have become known as the zombie formalists. And the flippers came in there and they would buy up this young art, pleasing to the eyes, slightly intellectually um, stimulating artworks, and then selling them, you know, from hands to hands to hands uh, across the market for these huge windfalls. And these people were financializing it and turning it into a pretty good business. What is your take on the flippers and the questions surrounding that mode of operating in the business? You know, Andrew, they weren't new at all. In fact, that's how I figured it out. So it was 2006. The Leipzig school was super hot at the time. There were waiting lists. I remember these instances of reselling art very quickly. I just remember noticing it and being sort of fascinated by it. So then there was the recession, right? And then as things began to kind of pick up again, I just remember it was December 2013. I was in Miami for Art Basel. Again, you know, it goes back to the same, like, seeing parallels between languages and cultures and, you know, my comparative literature mind, I keep coming back to it, but it's really how I see things and how things come to me. You know, I just noticed, I was like, oh my God, I've seen this before. And I remember, I think Hausenworth was offering Mark Bradford and the talk at the time was that you had to buy one and donate one. And there were all these rules. To me, it was like an example of an overheating market, a market that's going into something that I recognized as a bubble. And so I started asking around just what's going on, what are the hot names? And and then it kind of came together, but in a much bigger way. And then you realize that we've been seeing this. It continues. It just shifts from zombie formulas to whatever the flavor of the year, you know, and we're going through these periods right now. We're seeing the same thing with African-American artists, right? There's so much flipping, so much flipping going on. And there was something in between those two trends, but it really is the more you are in the market and you notice things, you see these parallels. Those are kind of the moments that I really treasure as a reporter is when your time in the market of just seeing things and remembering artworks that made an impact on you and then seeing them pop up somewhere entirely different. How have you seen things actually change? How has the art market evolved since you began covering it? I think everything just gotten, in some ways, a lot bigger and more maybe institutionalized. The leading galleries have gotten bigger. The artist studios have gotten bigger. I feel like there's just so much marketing, which is frustrating right and i feel like it's sometimes hard to cut through the spin like everybody's spinning for the reason that we talked about before that people have realized how effective art could be not just as an asset but also as a marketing tool the publicity you can get by buying work of art versus just having a retail business and you know the galleries i don't know i'm just thinking of david swarner used to be like very informal conversations. You go in a gallery, you chat with David, you know, if you have a question, you give him a call. And now it's like 
apparatus or the press machine. There's that, you know, don't have access. But now there are steps, right? The, these big galleries have gotten so big. They've become huge businesses. They have heads of business development who come from major banks. It's something very different. Right now around this like, you know, incredibly dynamic and volatile NFT market, we've got the flippers coming in. But at the same time, it's a lot of marketing for the cryptocurrency sector and for different players who have a hugely vested interest in getting a lot of positive attention around cryptocurrency in general because they're so invested. Like, how do you know when an art purchase or an art sale is not what it appears to the naked eye? You don't know immediately. I mean, sometimes you know, but one of my favorite stories took a year to report and like a day to write. They had to do with Joe Lowe. You know, at the time, these big purchases were being made. Nobody knew exactly who was making them. And then his name started to pop up as a buyer. And at the time, Christie's was really killing Sotheby's in contemporary art. And then I just remember every sale, Christie's would get all the best stuff. And then Sotheby's would have something amazing that they got somehow non-competitively turned out like with no guarantee and it was very consistent and they were just amazing works of art there was a Rothko there was this Fontana yellow egg there was a Basquiat you're like how did it what like sometimes you just have to ask yourself does this make sense like this makes no sense something else is in play and so over the year I mean it happened literally over the entire year and I started finding out that the seller was Jolo. But we didn't know that Jolo was uh, involved in the massive money laundering scheme, right? We didn't know any of that at the time. It just seemed weird. And then there was, I think the market turned and then the works came up for sale. They were bought at auction. They did poorly against their purchase prices and they were a part of those works. So he was a seller at Sotheby's, right? And so they were doing well, well, well. And then suddenly the market turned and they stopped doing well. And then I was able to kind of put it all together just at the time. I think it was right ahead of the, I guess the investigation was going on, but we didn't know about that investigation. It was just this mysterious person who was a major, major art buyer. And suddenly he became a major, major seller who started losing money. And why then would he still sell at this time? You know, and, and then all other questions arose and then we subsequently know now the full story but it was just very interesting to just again like going back to what I said earlier just notice things like how I was calling crude oil traders and like when you see a differential that just sticks out right it makes no sense you know something is off I wish those kind of stories happen every month but you know they don't <laughs> so you kind of like hope for the next big story like that where your own understanding of the market and art and certain connoisseurship and just curiosity all come together and just produce something that's very unique very exclusive very you so your column debuted last week with your incredible scoop on the real heavyweight rainmaker amy capolazzo stepping down from sotheby's if i could ask you as you're starting out this column as you're looking around the field, what are three areas that strike you as being the richest for inquiry and the most dynamic right now? 
obviously the NFT, the world, the crypto world, uh, and the interaction with the art world is fascinating. I have so much to learn about it still and to understand the implications, but I think that that's really a huge story. I'm kind of curious, and it's not a, the biggest story, but it intrigues me, is that there's now, it seems like a pretty vibrant art scene in Palm Beach, <laughs> you know, and in Miami, right? Because if the wealthy art patrons are moving their businesses and homes and enroll their kids in schools down there, like, what does it mean for New York then? Because this is the money, right? You follow the money again. So that that's intriguing. And of course, you know, it's fascinating, the whole interplay between museums and galleries and auction houses is really interest me in the way they affect the market and set certain trends in motion, you know, in terms of buying trends and selling trends. And also a huge story, right, is this need and demand really for diversification of the boards, of the collections, of the gallery stables, and how, you know, hopefully there should be just a huge shift, right, in what our art world looks like. Hopefully it, it's going to be a little bit less white. The possibilities there are incredibly exciting and incredibly important and can have profound impact on the collections, but also on the market. And that's sort of what I'm tracking. Well, these are really rich mysteries that I'm very excited to see the art detective tackle <laughs> one after another in your new column that comes out every Thursday and is one of the jewels in the crown of the new Artnet News Pro offering that we're all very excited about. Katya, thank you so much for coming on The Art Angle. Thank you so much, Andrew. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, make sure to check out Shattering the Glass Ceiling, our exciting new podcast mini-series focusing on inspiring women in the art world coming out Wednesdays. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Malley, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.